2: Good morning. I'm pet trendologist Charlotte Reed. Dr. Fleck is out on special assignment. You are listening to the Pet Buzz, the ultimate in Pet Talk Radio. We welcome our listeners who tune in each week from around the world. You know, this week on the Pet Buzz, I'm talking about May as Lyme Disease Awareness Month. Kansas State University College of Veterinary Medicine, Dr. Brian Heron, is with us talking about the veterinary controversy associated with this disease we also have an expert on genomic investigation of dogs and he's telling us why we should get our canine four-legged family members dna tested well let's kick off the show with author and ask the rabbi ron isaacs who will talk about animals in the bible rabbi ron isaacs is the rabbi emeritus of temple shalom in bridgewater He is also the author of more than 100 books, including "Do Animals Have Souls?" Good morning, Ron. Thank you so much for joining us today. Before we get started with our Q and A session, can you tell us what prompted you to write a book about a pet lover's guide to spirituality?
0: I have always had pets, always owned dogs, um, and as a congregational rabbi, many of my congregants own all kinds of animals, and because Judaism informs my life. Um, It was only natural for me to explore the Jewish views of animals and pets. And uh, and that's what led me to try to get a publisher to publish my book.
2: Awesome. So I'm just curious, can you tell us, why did God create animals?
0: So uh, if you read the Bible in the book of Genesis, uh, the Adam and Eve story, you've got the first man and the first woman, and you have all these animals that get along with each other. So when Adam and Eve were created, God says it's not good for them to be alone. Right after that, you have um, animals. They're talking about animals. So it in my estimation, one was that animals would be good companions for Adam and Eve because Adam actually gets to name the animals. And secondly, because there are all of these food laws, um, the kosher laws, the Israelites. Um, and it's clear that one of God's purposes was that some of these animals would be allowed to be eaten and enjoyed by human beings for food. So it would be for sustenance for food and animals that could be helper animals, like to pull a plow or to ride a horse, that kind of thing.
2: Cool to work with Adam and Eve. Well, you know, it's really interesting because one of the things that I know from growing up, there are some animals in the Bible that were talking animals. Can you tell us a little bit about them?
0: That is correct. So the first talking animal ever to be mentioned is this thing called a snake, getting back to the Adam and Eve story. Um, and the snake also had legs and speaks Hebrew, which is a little bit odd. Um, and the most uh, famous talking animal is um, in the book of Numbers, and it's a talking donkey. In this crazy story where a donkey talks to a pagan prophet um, who is being sent by a king to curse the israelites and the pagan called bilam is on a donkey and he's starting to whip the donkey he's beating the donkey at which time the donkey opens his mouth and tells bilam don't keep hitting me why are you beating me and the next thing you know in the story um bilam's eyes are opened he sees an angel of god and the angel of god says uh Don't feed that donkey anymore. So that donkey, that talking donkey is kind of like the Mr. Ed, that horse television show. I I remember Mr. Ed. That talking donkey is my Mr. Ed, my Jewish Mr. Ed.
2: Your Jewish Mr. Ed. Okay, well, you know, blessings are part of our, I think, our daily life, especially in times right now. Are there any instances in the Bible when God blesses animals?
0: So on the fifth day of creation, God actually does. Bless the animals and in blessing them, he says more or less, you shall be fertile and increase and fill the seas and fill the air. So it seems that one of the purposes of the blessing was to give them the the possibility of propagating and increasing in numbers. But he does, just as he blessed Adam and Eve, he does bless the animals, which is very helpful to me because I'm hoping that we will get to talk about whether I've ever blessed an animal.
2: Well, why don't you tell us? Have you?
0: I have. So I started with my own. Mm-hmm. I've owned fevers for the past 30 years. And every Friday night before my Sabbath dinner, I put my hands upon my animal and I say to her, may God bless you and watch over you. I come up with a different one every single week. And then about six years ago, I started blessing the animals, cats, dogs, and whatever at our local Jewish community center. So that happens in September I'm the rabbi that offers these blessings, and it's an opportunity for people to come and not only get their animal blessed, but sometimes I will also say a prayer for healing. Somebody will come up to me and say, my dog's about to have an operation. Would you say a blessing for its well-being? And I said, of course. so And I think that I've gotten more of my congregants to also think about considering blessing their pets whenever during the year.
2: Now i you know I think that's wonderful because that's one of the questions I wanted to ask you today as a Jew, how can I incorporate my pet into my religious lifestyle so a Shabbat blessing is a great thing, and then you mentioning um that you in September are blessing some of the animals in your local synagogue but just to remind everyone out there who's not Jewish, there is the blessing of the animals that takes place in early October with Saint Francis of Assisi, who was the priest who gave up his wealth and decided to live amongst the animals and bless them and, and interact with them on a daily basis. So it just goes to show you whatever religion you are, there is some discussion about animals in religion and how to treat animals. And uh, I I think this is a great segment. I'm so glad that we could kick off the show with this because I think really animals are such a big part of our lives. There are, they are our four legged family members. Well, if you've just joined us, we're talking with Rabbi Ron Isaacs. He's the rabbi emeritus of Temple Shalom in Bridgewater, New Jersey. He is also the author of more than a hundred books, including the book we're talking about today, Do animals have souls? So Rabbi, what were you saying to me before I interrupted you?
0: One of the things I'm hoping to do with my current pet, my Reba, my golden retriever, is to have her become a therapy dog. One of the things that I've learned is that therapy dogs can be very helpful with people that are in nursing homes or hospitals. And so I'm trying to get other people in my congregation and community to also consider either having their dog become a therapy dog or possibly raising a dog that eventually become a dog for people who are being impaired. And the other thing that's really important for all of our listeners to know is there is a religious obligation for people of the Jewish faith to always feed their pets before they eat their meal. And I've taught all of my congregants that, and I will never, ever eat one morsel until my dog gets her food.
2: That's good to know. I think it's a great rule, a great humanitarian, as well as religious rule. Okay, so let's get back to the questions. So we just recently asked you about the talking animals, but I'm curious, you know, can you cite some examples of kindness to animals by biblical heroes?
0: So I think that the probably the, the my best example of the kindness to animals by a biblical character is the very beautiful Rebecca. So the story is Abraham has this servant, Eliezer. Um, He wants his son Isaac to have a wife, so he's trying to get a servant to find her a wife. And so Eliezer is on his way, and Abraham sets up this test and says, if you can find a woman that will say that you're going to give the animals drinking water first before you get food yourself, she's going to be the one for my son. And so Eliezer goes, and he meets this Rebecca, and Rebecca. The first thing she sees is she sees these camels and, of course, she says, I would like to offer your animals water first. And in my research, it takes like, uh, I don't know, 25 hours to fill up an, a camel with water. So she's spending a lot of time dealing with these animals. And the rabbis look at the story and say, you know what? Here is a woman that's very, very compassionate. She's as concerned about the animals as she is with this human being. And from that story we get one of the most important of all of these 613 mitzvahs, the commandments, and that is compassion to animals, or in Hebrew, tzar, chayim.
2: Hmm. I didn't know that story about Rebecca. Where can we find that story?
0: So that story is in the book of Genesis, early on in the book of Genesis, when we get to Abraham being asked by God to leave his country. I'm not exactly sure what the chapter is. But, we'll um, find it, we'll of, find uh, it, the but the we, at least we know where it goes. is. Definitely find it.
2: Cool. But, you know, my last question is really simple. It's the title of your book, Do Animals Have Souls?
0: So you saved the best question for last. So nobody really knows, but I'll give you my answer more or less in the book. I know that I believe that humans have a soul, um, but the question as to whether animals do hasn't been asked so much by rabbis in the past. But there have been some Jewish viewpoints about animals having souls. So the best answer that I can give you is, is that man has a soul called a nefesh, Hebrew eager word for soul, and has another word for soul called Nishama. And the reason why there are two different words for soul is because man was made in God's image. Animals were not. And I understand that to mean that when man was made in God's image, means that we have the ability to make choices, to know what the difference is between right and wrong, to know that if there's a fasting day on our calendar, that that is the day that we have to fast. And animals, no matter how smart they are, they, they can't do that. So human souls, in the Jewish view, go to a place called the world to come. As far as animals are concerned, there is not a whole lot written about whether their soul, only called a nefesh, whether it has a world to come. But I will say that having owned animals and having had pets for almost 50 years, that all of the pets that I've owned, have sold because to me the animals are the light of my life. They are the candle that lights up my life and uh, I hope to meet up with all of my many pets in Olam Haba in the future world.
2: What a great way to end the segment. Thank you Rabbi Ron Isaacs for joining us today. Can you be so kind as to give us a website where we can learn more about your book and also tell us where we can buy your book?
0: Sure. I have a really easy website. It's RabbiRon.com. RabbiRon.com, that's my website. You'll, you'll get to see that book and some of the others. And as far as where to purchase it, you can get it through, from Amazon, of course. We'll of course. Anything from Amazon. But right. the publisher, I need to mention the publisher, it's K-T-A-Z, called K T A Z. And they are the ones that took a chance and published this book. And I'm hoping that people that buy the book will not only find some answers about their pets, but perhaps learn a little bit more about how owning a pet can give you a more spiritual and meaningful life experience.
2: Well, everyone, that was Rabbi Ron Isaacs, author of Do Animals Have Souls? You'll want to stick around with me because a little later in today's show, I'm talking about global pet news and we'll also be chatting with veterinarian Brian Heron about what you need to know about Lyme disease. But up next is celebrity pet gossip and the best pet theme gift for Mother's Day. Stay tuned.
3: When your doctor recommended omega fatty acids as a daily supplement, he told you that they promoted better heart, brain, skin, joint, and immune system health. Well, doesn't it make sense for your pet to have the same health benefits? Epi Pet Whole Fish Treat, an all natural smoked fish supplement, is 100% bioavailable, bringing your pets the nutrients they need to keep them healthy and happy. To order better pet health for your dog or cat, visit www.epi pet.com.
2: Thank you for joining us on the Pet Buzz this morning. This show is hosted by the dynamic pet duo. I'm pet Charlotte Reed and Dr. Fleck is out on special assignment. Well, you guys know that I love celebrity pet gossip, but I thought you would love this little juicy tidbit too, because it highlights celebrities and it also highlights the things that the good things that they do. Well, it seems that the Queer Eyes Fab Five treated a shelter dog to a makeover so she can find the perfect forever home. Thanks to the Five Five and North Shore Animal League, Lacey, a very sweet pooch with a great personality quickly found a forever home after her day with the Fat Five. Additionally, the Fat Five treated Lacey to chic accessories and covered her adoption fees. Well, Netflix confirmed to People Pets that Lucy has been adopted out by North Shore Animal League to a loving Long Island, New York couple that was struck by her complete and utter sweetness. Lacey, they say, is a perfect fit for their home. Well, we're going to move forward and we're going to talk about some pet products, some great gifts for Mother's Day. So what are you getting for your favorite pet mom for Mother's Day? Well, most of us fall back on the classics when it comes to time to buy Mother's Day gifts. Those kind of include flowers, a gift certificate to her favorite spot or hair cuttery, and maybe a yummy Sunday brunch. You know, you have to have the card in there too. But if you're looking to kick things up a notch for your pet mom, you might want to get her some creative, techie gifts, I think. You might want to find some gifts that will lighten her pet chore responsibilities, bring her some pleasure. So that's why I created this helpful list of pet tech gifts for every dog and cat mom. Okay, so what's the perfect gift for cat moms whose cat wakes them up in the wee hours of the morning for a meal? Well, I suggest the PetNet Smart Feeder, a well-designed automatic pet feeder that dispenses food on a schedule and pairs with your phone and other smart home devices to automate and track feedings. So really, all you have to do is close the bedroom door. Your pet, if he wants to eat at four o'clock in the morning, he wants to wake you up, he doesn't have to wake up anymore. He'll just get his, he'll get his meal dispensed from the feeder. So to learn more about the PetNet device, go to PetNet.io. Okay, now this is for the dog mom, for the dog mom who loves her for a so much that she trudges to the dog park every morning but needs coffee to deal with the dog park folk. You know what I'm talking about, everybody out there. Okay. So consider the Ember Travel Mug, the world's first temperature control smart mug. It's designed to be used on the go. So perfect for the dog mom going to the dog park. The Ember Travel Mug allows you to set your precise drinking temperature. You can adjust the temperature by rotating the doll at the base of the mug or pair it with the Ember app to set up your desired drinking temperature. So if you like it hot, it can be real hot. If you like it warm, it's okay. So you can either make the coffee at home, pour it in the mug, or you could stop at a Starbucks and pour the coffee inside the mug on the way to the dog park. Either way, Ember will maintain that temperature for approximately two hours. And I think that's more than enough time to get to the dog park and back for work. Check out ember.com. That's E-M-B-E-R.com. Okay, so let's talk about really lessening those pet mom chores, okay? So one of the things that I love to do is vacuum. Now, most pet moms aren't like me. I just don't like hair on the floor. Plus, honestly, my psychological makeup vacuuming relaxes me. Well, for those pet moms who really hate vacuuming, why should she do it herself? You should gift her with the Neato BotBot D7 Connected. Okay, so this robotic vacuum... Starts with a proprietary laser system, mapping and navigation technology. So the robot will cover more area in less time. It'll move around your house in a logical pattern, not randomly like other robots. And the new zone cleaning feature lets you clean specific areas of your home on demand with a push button. You want an extra deep clean to clean up all that pet fur? You can switch to turbo mode to speed up the brush, increase suction to pick up the pet hair and the skirt that you can't see. Plus the robot's unique D-shape design lets you get into corners better than other vacuums. If you don't have a large home, don't worry. It gets up to about two hours of runtime. So check out NeatoRobotics.com. Of course, you guys know that I'm going to put all this information up on our social media pages so that you can check it out. Okay, lastly, pet moms really want to have fun, whether they're home or they're away at the office, or they just want to check in with their pets. So you can do it with the Dogness Smart Eye Pet Robot. Now, I have to tell you, I've got one of these, so you know if I'm talking about it, I love it. Okay, so pet owners will be able to see their pets, your dog or cat through a camera, hear your pets through a built-in microphone, interact with your pets, or if you want to, feeding them treats or playing with your pets through an interactive laser Okay, laser pointer. It's a kind of a big laser. So it's not like your pet won't be able to see it. Pet owners have full control over the 360 degree mobility of the robot through the Dog this app and can securely take and save pictures and videos of their pets. Now, can you imagine? It's a little pet robot, moves around. It shouldn't say it's a little. It's a pretty decent sized, substantial robot. It's great for dogs and cats. And you can see, like I said, see, hear, and play with your pet. How about that? As well as dispense treats. Okay. So, last question, what are you guys waiting for? Go shopping for your favorite pet mom. Well, still to come on the Pet Buzz Global Pet News about why Australia is killing cats and how many pets are moved around the world each year. Also, in segment four, we will be chatting with Professor Adam Boyko on why you should have your pet DNA tested. But up next, we're talking to Dr. Brian Herron about Lyme disease. If you don't know it, May is Lyme Disease Awareness Month you and your pet really need to be careful with this one. Stay tuned. Does your pet have dry, flaky, and itchy
1: skin? Do you find yourself visiting the veterinarian repeatedly because Fido or Fluffy has skin allergies or ear infections? Epi pet to the rescue. Developed by a veterinarian, EpiPet is a revolutionary, high-performance skin and ear care product line made with the finest natural ingredients. EpiPet, for you and your pet, means better pet health. For more information, visit epi-pet.com.
2: Welcome back. You're listening to the Pet Buzz, the best in pet talk radio. I'm petronologist Charlotte Reed. Dr. Fleck is out on special assignment. This past week has been the American Humane Be Kind to Animals Week, but I want to remind you that you can commit to kindness 365 days of the year by being kind to your animals and to those other creatures who share our planet with us. Take care of your pets to the best of your ability. Donate money and time to various animal charities. Take the time to learn about animals in need and spread the word by talking to friends and others. Most importantly, lead by example. Why don't you take the pledge with me? I'm going to be kind to animals 365 days of the year. Say it with me one more time. I am going to be kind to animals 365 days of the year. Well, have you heard that May is Lyme Disease Awareness Month? Many states and counties across the United States have taken steps to raise awareness regarding Lyme and other tick-borne diseases. Joining us today to talk about Lyme disease and our pets is veterinarian Dr. Brian Heron. He is an assistant professor at Kansas State University College of Veterinary Medicine. While his current research focuses on Lyme disease in humans and dogs in North America, he co-teaches veterinary parasitology to second-year veterinary students, where he stresses client communication and education as part of a comprehensive Parasite Control Program. Welcome back to the Pet Buzz, Dr. Heron. Thanks for having me. So let's talk about Lyme disease. What's Lyme disease and how do dogs get the disease? The disease is caused by a bacteria
3: and it's transmitted from ticks. So specifically the black-legged tick. And it's a disease that can affect humans, dogs, horses, and, and all kinds of animals. So it's something that's always on our radar.
2: Okay, so how do dogs get it?
3: So ticks Black-legged ticks have to attach and feed, and they transmit that bacteria during that feeding process.
2: Okay. So what do pet owners need to know about it?
3: Yeah, I think the big thing to know is really, one, to be educated about where the disease is and that it's preventable, right? And we can have our pets on good tick preventives and check our pets for ticks to try to keep them from getting these diseases.
2: Okay. So where are the ticks that carry Lyme disease likely to be found?
3: These ticks um, are really in big numbers in the northeast states. So we're thinking New York, Pennsylvania, Maine, and the upper Midwest, like uh, Minnesota, uh, Wisconsin. They can be found across the eastern half of the U.S., but those are the most common areas, and they like wooded areas. So when you're out um, going for a hike, um, that's where they want to be.
2: I had also heard, like, tall grass, too. Is that
3: true? Yeah that specific tick really likes to be in oak forests. The deciduous trees really support the tick population. And Mm so it can be on the forest edge. And so there may be some grasses on that edge. So trail edges, Um, that can be common there, but usually associated with a nice healthy forest.
2: Okay. So if I find a black legged tick on my dog, how should I remove it? And what should I do with it?
3: We get this question a lot and, and really, you don't want to do any of the old wives' tales of burning it off or, or putting Vaseline on it. Those are no. We <laughs> okay, want no Vaseline. Just, no Vaseline. We just want to take tweezers and and try to grab the tick as close to the skin as possible and pull directly out. And and then for what to do with the tick, what I tell people is if you can put it into some scotch tape, some clear tape, or into a plastic baggie and and date it, Then if you or your pet starts to feel bad in the next two weeks, then you can go seek medical attention and say, hey, I found this tick. Here it is. What should I do? And your veterinarian or your physician can help you out at that point.
2: Great idea. So keep those plastic bags, those tweezers in those first aid kits, especially if you're going hiking, folks. This way, you have the opportunity to pull some ticks off your dog if you're in a wooded area, uh, like your Dr. Heron says, and that way you can always have access to those ticks. How long will they live in that plastic bag, though, Dr. Heron?
3: Yeah, they they, t- they tend to dry out, and so they may live a few days. They get kind of dried out and. And if you have alcohol, um, like rubbing alcohol, you can put them in rubbing alcohol. But, you know, if you just seal the bag up, they'll they'll live for a few days and then kind of dry out and die.
2: Okay. So how long does the tick need to be attached to transmit infection? Because I think that's a big question everyone wants to know. Like if you just jumped on your dog and attached, you know, like within the hour, do I need to worry? So there
3: does... Seem to be, uh, I guess we'll call it a grace period where the tick does have to attach for a certain amount of time before it can transmit um, certain diseases. For Lyme disease, it seems to be about 24 hours, but there are other diseases that ticks transmit that can be likely transmitted quicker. So I would say if you're going for a hike, after you're done hiking, take a look and see if you or your pet have has ticks on them. Um, When you take a shower that evening, check again. Um, Just try to be as thoughtful as possible. But knowing that, you know, right as as soon as a tick attaches, you're not going to get a disease 10 minutes later. And so (laughs) trying to be thoughtful about your tick checks, but but not, but not scare yourself.
2: I'm laughing because I'm such a hypochondriac. I'm, I would be like running to the vet. (laughs) Oh, that's right. I'd be running to Dr. Fleck. So Dr. Fleck, what are we going to do? Okay. So I had read, I I know I'm like, I always deal with my hypochondria, um, so, you know, I don't know if you ever saw that Chris Chris Rock was on TV once and he says he can't watch TV anymore because he sees all those drug commercials and he thinks he ends up having like every single disease. I'm, I'm practically like that. I'm one of yep. those. Like, oh my gosh, a headache. You pick up the you side know, yep. Exactly. Like, I got sick the other day. I have to admit, I was blowing some chunks and some blood came out. And I like immediately went to the Mayo Clinic website to make sure I wasn't dying. <laughs> Dr. Flex, what are you doing? I'm like, oh, I'm just making sure I'm not dying. He's like, well, that's a daily occurrence. Okay, so getting back to Lyme disease and not my uh, own, uh, you know, up there, um, hypochondria. Okay. So I heard, or I'm to understand it's controversial among you veterinarians regarding the fact that most dogs that test positive are not clinically ill.
3: Yeah. The research really struggles to reproduce the clinical disease and, and a lot of dogs do remain asymptomatic. The The problem with that is with these kind of chronic and insidious uh, diseases, there may be these underlying problems that we don't know about until much later in life. And so, while they may be happy and healthy today, we don't know if there are changes going on that may affect affect their health later on. And so, I, I'm a pretty strong advocate that we are not quite as good at determining if dogs are are truly ill, and and we don't know the long-term consequences. So I tend to err on the side of caution, but there is some controversy about does it cause disease all the time or or does it not? And I definitely want to be thoughtful of those veterinarians and and clients and patients that are seeing a lot of disease and dealing with this on a day-to-day basis.
2: So now this was new to me. There is more than one test that can help us determine if there's a Lyme infection.
3: Yeah, the most common test is a in-clinic test. They uh, draw a blood sample and they can test to see if your dog has been exposed to the bacteria. There's some more nuanced tests that kind of give a titer, basically, and, and says, what what level do we think your dog is infected now or was it previously infected? If we're starting treatment, is that treatment effective? And so Veterinarians can choose to do a quantitative test to just kind of see what that level of infection may look like and, and try to make decisions based on that. Uh, most commonly, the screening test, though, just says positive or negative. Yes, you've been exposed to the bacteria. Okay. So
2: then what are the symptoms? In
3: dogs, it starts out just pretty generic, and, and they can just start feeling poorly. So lethargy, they lose their appetite. You can become lame, so some joint pain. The bacteria does like to move into the joints, and so there can be some joint pain. Then that progresses long-term. There's some really significant damage done to the kidneys, and so basically they stop being able to filter their blood appropriately from their kidneys. And so uh, the long, really devastating effects of Lyme disease are seen much later down the the line, and, and it's kidney damage, while the front end seem pretty generic and and low key and that's why it may get overlooked just because it's very nonspecific and it's not that severe, they're not not bleeding out or, or anything really scary. And so it can be overlooked until it's too late and the damage is done.
2: Yeah, and I mean with kidney problems, that sounds really expensive and a special diet, correct?
3: Yeah, the problem when we have damage to an organ like that is some of that damage can't be undone. And so Even with the expense, you mentioned diets and upkeep, the expense can be because they have to be on long-term care. Uh, Whereas on the front end, the antibiotic treatment, uh, if recommended by the veterinarian, is usually affordable. And so when we're thinking about how we're making economic decisions, using preventive, uh, a tick preventive, and, um, you know, routine screening of our our pets for tick-borne diseases can really be significantly cheaper than when we get to the far end and, and have a significant medical disease, and now we have to upkeep it. And so trying to also make an economic push and say, hey, it's much cheaper to have your pet on a really good
2: preventive than it is to deal with medical expenses if you don't. So what kind of preventive are we talking about?
3: Now, there's a, a wide variety, and I am an advocate of a preventive that the owner can use reliably. And so there's a number of callers, that are effective. There are some topical products that um, are the kind of oil spot-on you put them in the middle of their back. And there's some oral products now for tick preventives. I like owners to let me know what they can use reliably. If they have a little land shark chihuahua that tries to bite them, then maybe an oral product isn't that great. Um, and so talking with your veterinarian about what they recommend and then what, what the pet owner specifically can use consistently. And that would be a great combination of veterinary recommended and what you're actually going to use. If it sits on your shelf, it's not very effective.
2: Absolutely. Now, are there Lyme disease shots? There
3: is a vaccine for Lyme disease. Mm-hmm. And I'll, I usually put that on on my third tier. So we, we want to educate our clients. We want to look for ticks. We want to be on a good preventive. And then in those high risk endemic areas, the Northeast and upper Midwest, veterinarians may recommend a vaccine uh, to add on and we want to just have that as our third tier We want, still want to be thinking about ticks. We still want to be using a good preventive and we just know that sometimes there's just so many ticks um, that bombard us that we have that third level of a vaccine and, and so in endemic areas the uh, veterinarians may recommend that it's a risk-based vaccine and mm-hmm. so if you're outside of that in, if you're outside of that endemic area your veterinarian may not recommend it. So I live in Kansas and and I don't use it in my pets because we don't, Consider ourselves to be an endemic area. But if I lived somewhere like New York, then I would be much more likely to. Sure.
2: No, I understand. And I think it's also a great idea for um, pet owners to do those nose to tail exams, especially uh, after a hike or spending some time out in the country. Or even if you're planning your summer vacation, talk to your vet about how the best nose to tail exam is. And even if ticks like to hide someplace, do they hide places on the body? I mean, is there a special place they like to attach themselves to?
3: What's weird is each tick species kind of has a little site that they like to go to. So the black legged tick, they they tend to go um, to uh, the back or the neck and the head and and they do that in in dogs and in humans. And so they initially will just kind of latch on to wherever. So if you're hiking by, they may attach on to your side or something like that because they're questing from a grass, but then when you kind of settle down and sit down, they may move to a preferred site. So you can find them anywhere, and it's going to do a nice thorough check, um, although they tend to find a, a good spot that's safe and keeps them from being knocked off or scratched off or bitten off, and so you kind of want a, a more permanent location.
2: Okay, great. Well, that was great advice. So, Dr. Heron, thank you so much for joining us today. Can you give us a website where pet parents can learn a little bit more about you and uh, Lyme disease? a great resource.
3: The Companion Animal Council just put out a pet disease alert website, and it's called petdiseasealert.com. It provides a forecast, and so owners can look at their state, uh, their county, and say, is the risk for Lyme disease high right now? And so it lets them know what's the risk in their area. And I think letting owners know a risk in their area and at a specific time really helps them to solidify the risk and, and it makes it real for them and so you can check it and say oh the, the the risk is low today but maybe next month when the ticks are out it's going to be higher and so having an idea of when the ticks are out and where they're at is, is really helpful
2: and where i remember last year especially a lot of the newspapers were reporting if it's a really hot summer there's going to be a lot of ticks
3: the all the variables that go into play um are pretty dynamic for supporting the ticks. Mm-hmm. What I will say is that the black-legged tick, specifically the adults, really like to be out in the fall. Okay. So October, November is when we when we see a lot of them. They get a lot of uh, news during the summer because people are out in the summer, and the juvenile stages are out in the summer, and so people will pick up the juvenile stages. Mm-hmm. But we know that. The adults are out in in the fall, so that's why I recommend Tick Preventive year-round, not just when it's nice and sunny outside in the summer, because the adult can also transmit Lyme disease. So the the juvenile stage and the adults, and that's why we recommend every pet be on a preventive every month and all year-round, just because we know the tick season is much larger than what often gets reported.
2: Great advice, Dr. Heron. Thank you so much for being with us. That was Dr. Brian Heron, Assistant Professor at Kansas State University College of Veterinary Medicine, discussing Lyme disease. Well, what's next on the PepBuzz? When I come back, I'll fill you in on Buzz Global News. And just so you know that Dr. Adam Boykin is standing by to talk about, by knowing your dog's genetic risk, you're better able to keep them healthy. Now, this is a segment not to be missed. Stay tuned. Warmer temperatures mean more time outside. You have sunscreen for yourself, but what about Fido? According to the American Animal
1: Hospital Association and the American College of Veterinary Dermatology, pets need sunscreen, too. Use EpiPet Sun Protector, the only FDA-approved pet sunscreen on short-haired, light-colored, hairless, golden retrievers, and other dogs susceptible to skin cancer. Contained in a sports bottle, EpiPet allows you to turn the bottle upside down, making it easier to spray your dog all over to protect your dog from the sun all day and every day. Visit epi-pet.com
2: i'm petrendologist charlotte reed dr fleck is on special assignment here at the pet buzz we're urban suburban and country well let's kick off this segment with some global pet news
1: and now pet buzz news from around the globe
2: You know, in 2005, Australia announced it was planning to exterminate millions of feral cats by 2020. After loud outcries from some very famous designers, such as Bridget Bardot and the Smiths frontman, the government tried to defend its action. Australia's threatened species commissioner, Gregory Andrews tried to defend the government position by noting that the call or the extermination isn't part of some cruel anti-cat agenda in Australia. Feral cats, which were introduced by the first European settlers, have become a huge threat to native wildlife. They're blamed for the extinction of several species unique to the country. He said, quote, like many invasive species, they're a little too good at killing the locals. And as they thrive and breed, the problem is only getting worse but our wildlife has endured one of the highest extinction rates in the world. We've lost 29 unique Australian mammal species over the last 200 years. And this represents 35% of the world's modern mammal extinctions and is the highest rate of mammal extinctions in the world. So, much of this, as Andrew explained, can be attributed to the fast proliferation and adapt hunting skills of the feral cat population. He said that feral cats have been fingered as a direct threat to at least 124. That's 124 of the country's threatened species. I want to know what you think. So let us know, should Australia be culling or exterminating cats? Let us know by posting on the PetBuzz social media channels or writing to us at team at thepetbuzz.com. Okay, so let's talk about a little bit of some dog news. Well, this is for those people out there who travel for work and who even have to relocate. So, well, if you are the subject to relocation, you need to think about this. Annually, some 4 million dogs and cats are moved worldwide according to estimates from the International Pet and Animal Transport Association, a professional body of Relocators, But while governments have made mandatory quarantine periods shorter or non-existent, that's only if you have the correct paperwork, airline rules have become increasingly restrictive, not to mention confusing. I mean, think about what's going on in the last year with all these airlines, Delta, Southwest, and, and American, and, and including United. Well, overseas expats particularly have been left scrambling. The last couple of years have seen all of the airlines, like I said, putting on more restrictions on pets flown as cargo to alleviate their risk, especially when a pet tragically dies during transport and makes the news headlines. An experienced relocator can suggest creative routes or identify loopholes in airline policy, but expats are often required to move a little notice, so researching and planning with a set of future destinations in mind can really make the process the relocation process smoother but really advanced preparation isn't always enough airline regulations can change at a moment's notice leaving pet owners in the lurch especially experts recommend start saving money because sometimes getting your pet transported can cost anywhere from seven to ten thousand dollars And now let's move on with the show. You've probably seen those ads for a company that wants to tell you about your genome. All you have to do is swab your cheek and put the sample in a packet and mail it off. From there, you can learn about what disease risk you're subject to. But I want to know, is it the same for our pets? Well, our next guest is going to talk about getting our pets DNA tested. Joining us today is Dr. Adam Boyko, Assistant Professor in Biomedical Sciences at the Cornell University College of Veterinary Medicine. He is an expert on genomic investigation of dogs and has uncovered the genetic basis for many dog diseases and traits. Well, you know, Dr. Boyko, welcome so much to the Peppas. We're happy to have you.
4: Thanks. Great to be here.
2: So you know, I, in February I came back from Westminster, and I know that many breeders are interested in testing their dogs for the next generation of a healthy litter. You know, I saw there was a DNA vendor there, and a lot of people were you know coming over asking questions. But really, why should the average pet owner get their dog DNA tested?
4: Yeah, DNA testing is not just something that breeders do. So owners want to know that the dog that they're that they just got is what the breeder said it was. That it isn't at risk for any of the genetic mutations that we know underlie disease. It's useful to know the inbreeding coefficient of the dog, make sure it's been bred well. There's lots of different reasons. You can even find relatives of your dog, like if you adopted a dog at a shelter, so you can learn the breed mix as well as other family members that might be out there. Most people don't know that sort of information about their dog, particularly if they adopted it from a shelter. People are pretty happy with DNA testing when they have it done on their dog. And I've seen situations where You know, people were having all sorts of problems with their dog, maybe behavioral issues. And then they found out, oh, my dog is half border collie and I had no idea. And they changed the training regimen to the dog and, you know, suddenly have a whole new relationship with their dog.
2: You know, I think it's actually interesting that you mentioned a lot of people when they get a dog, they get it DNA tested. And I thought that was brilliant because a lot of people end up buying dogs over the Internet or, you know, from a recommendation, and they never meet the breeder, they never go to the breeder's home, and they never see the litter or the conditions. So you hope that what you're paying for is a blank, or Maltese, or Beagle, or English Toy Spaniel, or a Great Dane. So I think that's actually, you know, really a a great, a great reason to DNA test your dog other than the nutrition and the behavioral. And even I've, I've recently heard that, especially with sight hounds, you want to DNA test them because there could be aversions to certain medication.
4: That's right. So certainly many breeds have known genetic predispositions for problems. And, you know, one of them in sight hound and herding breeds is sensitivity to certain drugs. Mm-hmm. And so this is, you know, a completely avoidable medical condition. You just don't give the dog... The drugs that they're sensitive to, you give them alternative drugs, and you never have a problem. But if you don't know, and a lot of people adopting a shelter dog might not know it, has these breeds in the mix and might be at risk for this, uh, without a DNA test, you could incur pretty expensive veterinary bills or worse, uh, you know, if, if it's too high of an overdose.
2: Well, you know, I'm just curious what kind of things can we learn from pet genetics? I mean, can you give us a few examples of what we have discovered or you've discovered from DNA testing and how we can help our pets?
4: Sure. I mean, genetic testing has been going on in dogs long before I got into the field. You know, we've known there's a genetic defect, uh, in this gene, HUU. Uh, if you don't know that your dog has it, your dog is almost certainly going to develop bladder stones, which is a very painful and expensive condition to treat. But if you do know they're at risk, you can feed them a prescription diet, make sure they have plenty of water and you won't uh, have that problem. There's lots of bleeding disorders. Uh, if you, Know that your dog is at risk of that before the dog goes into surgery. Uh, You can avoid all sorts of complications. You know, exercise-induced collapse and lots of different inherited eye disorders are problems. And if you know what to look for and you know how to, um, you know, reduce the severity, uh, that can make a big impact in your dog's life.
2: I mean, I think this is so fascinating. And the thing is, when you get – if you – You know, I'm going to ask you about recommending kits and stuff, but you know, I think if you do DNA test your dog, um, whether, like I said, if you're just trying to find out exactly what your dog is, you should take those results to your veterinarian and share them. Don't you think, Dr. Boyko?
4: Absolutely. Um, You know, the more your vet has in terms of information, uh, the better they're going to be able to diagnose and make recommendations uh, for your pet. And, you know, also, it's important when you're interpreting. Your genetic results for your dog to involve your veterinarian. You don't want to make you know medical decisions on behalf of your dog without involving the veterinarian. The DNA test isn't going to diagnose a disease. It's only going to show that there's a genetic predisposition for that disease that may or may not be relevant for your dog.
2: So fascinating. What useful and insightful information. And also, the other thing that you said about, you know, for example, if you have a dog that has urinary problems or bladder stones, you really definitely need the help of your veterinarian so he can recommend a special diet.
4: Yeah. So if you know that your dog's at, you know, at genetic risk for this, um, you can just change the diet and, and avoid this unnecessary pain and, and that dull entirely.
2: Now, I'm just kind of curious. You know, in your in your laboratory, (laughs) doing your research, um, it's so scientific. So I'm just picturing you in the laboratory in your white coat. I've seen some of the pictures online and stuff. You and Cornell, but I'm just curious. Like, what other things have you uncovered?
4: We looked a lot at the evolution of dogs. So we've been collecting dogs all around the world, including you know remote places like Africa and Nepal and Vietnam, and uh, we've we've found that the maximal level of dog diversity is in central asia so that's sort of a key key finding you know pointing to central asia as the origin of dogs and so we call these village dogs and you know that are that are all around the world so they harbor a lot of genetic diversity that we don't see in purebred dogs or even mixed breed dogs that we typically encounter uh in you know shelters in the United States mm-hmm. elsewhere so that was one area of our research but we've also been really interested you know, in looking at uh, traits that have been selected for in certain breeds, and what are the genetics underlying some of these differences? Because dog breeds have such a huge amount of diversity in the way they look, and in their size, and you know, all these sorts of traits. Um, so we've discovered new genes underlying body size and dog fur type, including the degree to which a dog is going to shed. Wow! Its lifetime so. You know something interesting for a for an owner to know maybe before you buy how how much shedding you should expect from your dog, and um, we've been you know really fortunate to have funding from National Institutes of Health and National Geographic and all that to do this research.
2: Now that uh, shedding recently, now that shedding thing sounds really interesting. <laughs>
4: yeah,
2: yeah, yeah, you know,
4: brand new uh, brand new gene that hadn't been discovered before, but it's a really strong strong signal there. So so one thing. That I've done kind of as an offshoot of Cornell University recently to get even more samples. So we, you know, in my lab, we've, we've genotyped thousands of dogs, but for understanding the genetic basis of some complicated things like different behaviors that different dog breeds have or, you know, different cancer risks and hip dysplasia and allergies and, and all these complicated genetic things, we really need, you know, tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dogs. And so, you know, recently my brother and I started up a company. Embark Veterinary, which is sort of like a 23andMe for dogs, where people can get their dogs genetically tested on this kind of research platform that was designed at Cornell University and get as comprehensive results as possible right now, but also then their dog's genetic profile can be used to push forward the research and make new discoveries. And so we've been working on that and now have hundreds of thousands of dogs uh, genotypes, which is a really exciting opportunity for research and discovery
2: i bet i recently had uh had uh, seen an interview with the owner of 23 and Me, and i know she's working with pharmaceutical companies now i think her husband has ms is that correct or do you do you know what i'm talking about so now they're working with pfizer yeah, pharmaceuticals parkinson's. Uh, oh parkinson's. parkinson's that's right parkinson's so now they're um, working so, with so pfizer so to and develop and parkinson's and right yeah so are you and your brother so doing the same the thing too as well <laughs> cool That's really cool. Yeah, she's an investor in in Embark. Awesome. So is the process for DNA testing um, animals or dogs different from humans?
4: Uh, It's almost the same, though. If you get a 23andMe test or an Ancestry DNA test, uh, you have to spit in a tube uh, and fill it up with with your saliva and DNA is extracted from that. We haven't figured out a way to get dogs to spit in a tube. So it's a cheek swab that's used. And so you just sort of swap the dog's mouth, absorb the saliva, and and send that back in for analysis. But you know, otherwise it's being processed in very similar ways.
2: So I'm gonna ask you a selfish question. Have you ever done any uh, any uh, testing with English toy spaniels?
4: Oh yeah, yeah. English toy spaniels are one of the three hundred breeds we looked at.
2: What'd you find out? Can you <laughs> All tell me related to Because I have five. <laughs>
4: Oh wow! Yeah, that's great. Yeah, so you should get a dog DNA test then and see what we can see.
2: Well, that's great. So now, unlike human testing, is DNA testing for dogs are the te- are the pet tests regulated or no?
4: Uh, unfortunately, they're not regulated uh, in in anything like the way human DNA testing is done. So there's you know voluntary standards and there's there's efforts to try to to organize you know, some of the labs, um, you know, and I'm, I'm helping work on some of those efforts. Uh, but it, there is a lot of buyer beware and, you know, needing to look at reviews, needing to look at the company, you know, are there veterinarians and scientists working for that company, looking at your results, or is it, you know, really just something that's been put together that, you know, might be okay, might not be okay, might be completely fraudulent, like it runs the gamut.
2: Yeah, I mean, I read an article not such a long time ago comparing different DNA tests, A reporter decided to test her dog, and she got very different results. But, I mean, you're affiliated with Cornell, so, I mean. uh, Right.
4: Yeah, I mean, I think university testing labs, you know, as well as other, you know, professional labs that have accredited facilities and, you know, DVMs and PhDs working for them can give very accurate tests, you know, the same level of accuracy as you see in human tests. Uh, My company, Embark, uses a CLIA-certified lab and has several veterinarians and, you know, geneticists working for the company to make sure that, you know, we're giving top-notch results. Um, but unfortunately, not all companies go through that same, you know, rigorous process. There's temptation to cut corners, keep costs low, uh, and that can really cause problematic uh, results that aren't, you know, scientifically justified.
2: And the tests are, I'm not going to say they're expensive, but they're like 90 and up, correct? Somewhere in there?
4: Yeah. Yeah. This isn't, you know, like buying a bag of dog treats for your dog. It's, it's a bit more of an investment in your dog's health. And so you want to make sure that you're actually investing in a platform that's going to give you the information uh, that you're going to need and that you can trust.
2: But Whatever you spend, you are working to have a healthier dog and save that dog's life. So in the long run, it's completely worth it. On that note, I'm going to end the interview right there. Thank you so much for joining us today. But before you leave, can you give us a website where we can learn more about what you are up to and DNA testing and how it can keep our pets healthy?
4: Sure. I encourage everyone to to visit the Embark Vet website, E M B A R K V E T. Uh, com. There's lots of resources up there explaining genetic testing, what the Embark test offers, and gives you some idea about the research that's being done in the field.
2: That was Dr. Adam Boyko, Assistant Professor in Biomedical Sciences at Cornell University College of Veterinary Medicine, talking about the many dog disease and traits that we can find out from DNA testing. That's my bell signifying it's time to wrap the show. But before we go, we want to give you a preview of next week's show. Next week, we're talking about how Brexit affects British pets living in the EU, how to get rid of skunk smell and how to examine cat poop. But before we go, I want to thank our guests. Special thanks to Rabbi Ron Isaacs, Dr. Adam Boyko and Dr. Adam Heron. And We must always thank our sponsors, the Animal Medical Center of Bradenton and EpiPet Making Better Skin, coated ear care products for healthier pets everywhere. Now, if you have a question, I want you to write us a team at thepetbuzz.com and we'll cover it on our next week's show. And you also know that you could follow along our show and our social media channels at the same time we drop things as topics come up on the show it's very exciting and it's a fun way to actually listen to the show and if you've missed any portion of the show visit our social media channels and listen to the linked podcast on Monday morning most importantly remember we're here each week to help you take better care of your pets peace out and pet love
1: goodbye thank you for listening to this episode of the pet buzz The Pet Buzz is hosted by the dynamic pet duo, pet trendologist Charlotte Reed, and Dr. Michael Fleck. Tune in each week for the latest 411 on everything pet related. Visit our website at www.thepetbuzz.com. Learn more about us, the show, and our guests.